Tonight, straight from the source, a show of force for Donald Trump in New Hampshire, as several of his former rivals are now falling in line behind him, as Nikki Haley gets the one-on-one -on -one race she's been asking for. Plus, he is often called the kingmaker of Democratic politics, and he helped put President Biden in the White House. Can Congressman Jim Clyburn be able to help keep him there? He'll join me live in a moment. Also, as families of hostages burst into Israel's parliament demanding that the government do more to bring their loved ones home. We have new reporting tonight on conditions for a possible ceasefire. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. The first votes are about to be cast in the first in the nation primary. Seriously, starting at midnight tonight, the six registered voters who live in the small town of Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, will cast their votes. And with three hours to go, there is just one rival standing in the way of what could otherwise be a 2024 rematch between President Biden and Donald Trump. That's Nikki Haley, of course, who has been crisscrossing the state today after Ron DeSantis dropped out and endorsed Donald Trump, despite how the former president spent months trying to humiliate him. In fact, you're about to see three of Trump's former rivals on stage with him in Laconia, New Hampshire. Senator Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, maybe not really a rival so much as a, someone who was a surrogate for him on the campaign trail, but also North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. The old saying goes, Democrats fall in love while Republicans fall in line. Democrats are maybe not so much in love with their choice, but Republicans tonight are certainly falling in line one by one as the GOP appears to be encircling Trump yet again. No matter what he said about them, no matter how outrageous, and no matter what they've said about him. Exhibit A, Senator Tim Scott. I'm not going to defend the indefensible. What we want to see from our president is clarity and moral authority, and that moral authority is compromised. That was then, and this is now. We need Donald Trump. We need a president who will unite our country. We need Donald Trump. Now, when it comes to Governor DeSantis, he will not be on that stage there tonight in New Hampshire. I'm actually told that he still has not spoken to Trump since he bowed out of the race and ultimately kissed the ring, a notion that DeSantis mocked just eight days ago. You can be the most worthless Republican in America, but if you kiss the ring, he'll say you're wonderful. Cut to Ron DeSantis now. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear. And then tonight, there is also Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Like Senator Scott, she also hails from Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina. And like him, she has just endorsed Trump as well. Doing so despite how Trump endorsed her primary opponent, while Haley supported Mace in that race, and despite how Congresswoman Mace once vowed to hold Trump accountable for January 6th. I believe we need to hold the president accountable. I hold him accountable for the events that transpired for the attack on our Capitol last Wednesday. We need to have it a one-on-one -on -one race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Everything was better under Trump by every measurement. 
You get the point, of course. It's not unusual to see formal rivals or critics in politics change their tune, back someone who was once their opponent, no matter how nasty that race got. That, for better or for worse, it's politics. We all know that. But it is still remarkable tonight to see just how quickly and just how many have jumped onto the Trump train, only one contest into this race. Really raises the question of whether Trump could have this nomination, the Republican nomination, essentially locked up as soon as tomorrow night, potentially. We start our coverage tonight with Kristen Holmes, who is live at the Trump event in Laconia, New Hampshire. Kristen, what is the latest on the campaign trail now that it is just this one-on-one person race between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley? Well, Caitlin, listening to those clips, it certainly feels reminiscent of 2016. This is the same thing that we saw then with these Republicans who had come out against the former president only to then back him in full force. Now they have a full show of force here tonight. We talk about how the campaign is feeling. They're feeling a lot better today than they were a week ago. We cannot underestimate the value of Ron DeSantis dropping out of the race and endorsing Donald Trump, not because of votes here in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis was never really a player. They never really took him seriously. They always viewed this as a two-person race between Trump and Nikki Haley in this state. But in terms of being able to sell this, as Republicans coalescing around Donald Trump. As you noted, for a year, Donald Trump went after Ron DeSantis time and time again. And yet still, Donald Trump, excuse me, Ron DeSantis got up there and endorsed Donald Trump. Now, again, as you noted, he's not going to be on the stage tonight. I am told that while they haven't talked, Trump's team did reach out to DeSantis's team and offer an open invitation to campaign with the former president. Uh, but it does seem a little bit unlikely. We heard Donald Trump on Fox throwing shade at Ron DeSantis earlier today, essentially saying you wouldn't have him in his administration, likely. And on Twitter, or X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, Ron DeSantis throwing a little shade back at Donald Trump. So uh, it doesn't really feel like there's love lost. But regardless, we know the campaign is selling this as Republicans coming together behind Trump. They want to sell this as Nikki Haley is done. She needs to drop out of the race. Caitlin? We'll see if they get their wish tomorrow night. Kristen Holmes at the Trump event in New Hampshire. Thank you. And my next guest tonight is the chair of the House Freedom Caucus, very influential on Capitol Hill among Republicans. He initially endorsed Governor DeSantis last May before DeSantis actually even got into the race. And yesterday, just moments after DeSantis dropped out, Congressman Bob Good tweeted, it is my privilege to provide my complete and total endorsement for Donald J. Trump as the 47th president of the United States. And Virginia Congressman Bob Good is here. Congressman, thank you for joining us here on The Source tonight. As I noted, you initially backed DeSantis in this race. You had concerns about Trump's electability in the general election. Now that you've endorsed Trump, do you still have those concerns tonight? Uh, I think President Trump is going to win the nomination uh, as soon as tomorrow, as you noted. I think he's going to sail to the nomination. Republicans across the country and many independents, moderate swing voters are rallying behind him. Everyone is worse off today than they were three years ago when Joe Biden was president. Uh, President Trump gave us one of the strongest economies we've ever had. We had record low unemployment, record low inflation, uh, record low interest rates, real wages rising. American was energy independent on its way to energy dominance. We had the strongest military that was respected in the world and no one wanted to challenge us. That's why we didn't get any conflicts when he was president. And Americans are hungry for that again. I think they recognize how much we've suffered under this president, they connected to the terrible policies. And so you're seeing uh, Republicans and many others rallying behind President Trump. And uh, I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that he's elected.
Well, you mentioned energy dominance. I should note the U.S., of course, right now, as you know, Congressman, is producing more oil than any country in history ever has. But but you said that you do believe he's going to sail to the Republican. You said you said you did say that he's going to to sail to the Republican nomination. But do you think that, that Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden in a general election matchup? Well, you would hope that it wouldn't even be close. You wonder how it could even possibly cl- be close. How could anybody vote for to continue this border invasion that has done irreparable harm to the country? 10 million illegals invading the country with the help of this president and his policies. Two million of those, the very dangerous criminal gotaways, the ones who don't surrender for all the free health care, free social services, free travel, free education, free housing with, you know, they're just released in the interior of our country. That's eight million. Then you get the two million that are the most dangerous individuals. Uh, yeah, how could anyone vote for this record high inflation. The average American is paying $1,000 a month, average American family, more for the essentials just for groceries and housing and utilities and gas prices than they were before this president got into office. So I don't know how it could even be close. So I I certainly believe that President Trump will win and hopefully he'll win handily. Well, I'm curious about what's changed in your position on that, because you mentioned immigration and inflation, certainly two concerns that voters have. But but you were once recorded saying that Trump, quote, might be the only person that can lose to Joe Biden if he's the nominee. Are, are you still worried about that? President Trump was the best president of my lifetime. I've said that many times. I've always said that I would enthusiastically support him if he was our nominee. And I would do everything I could to help him get elected, as I did in 2020. Right, but the heart of the matter. I expect when I I expected when I first got elected in 2020, that I'd be serving uh, with a Trump presidency. I regret that that didn't happen, of course. Can I do everything I can to make my third term uh, a presidency where I can work with him? And frankly, it was the House Freedom Caucus who were his greatest allies, uh, his greatest friends uh, when, during his first term. And uh, certainly we will be again. I look forward to having a close working relationship with him and doing everything we can to reverse the harm that's been done by this president. Now, the time for comparing President Trump to other candidates is over we're united behind President Trump. I think you'll see that demonstrated, perhaps not as strongly in New Hampshire, just because you can have Democrats there voting for Nikki Haley. Uh, but uh, when we get to, uh, he, I think he's going to win New Hampshire anyway, but I certainly think he's going to win very handily in, in South Carolina and just stale going well, forward. Well, let me stop you there because there's been a lot of confusion sown about who can vote tomorrow in New Hampshire. The Republican governor has made clear, you know, if you have not changed your registration, in the last six months since October, you know, it's Republicans and independents will be voting tomorrow, not Democrats. But you previously said, I'm just curious because I don't really feel like I'm getting an answer on what has changed in your thinking, because you said, I can't stand by and watch and then regret that we nominated Trump. So what makes you feel differently now about how he'll fare in a general election matchup against President Biden? Well, I endorsed uh, Governor DeSantis back in May. I, uh, I said, I think he, I, I thought he's a model governor for the country. I thought he was an outstanding governor. I also have said many times, President Trump's the best president of my lifetime. So I spent seven or eight months uh, in support of Governor DeSantis. Now is the time to turn the page and support President Trump. Again, I said I would unequivocally support him if he was the nominee, enthusiastically so, as I did in 2016 and 2020. He's the best hope for America today. Uh, he is going to be the nominee. Uh, he did a great job his first term. I think he'll do an even better job his second term. let me ask you, because you mentioned multiple times the House Freedom Caucus, an influential conservative group, obviously, that you chair. But but you're facing a primary challenger right now in your race. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman, has just endorsed him, saying that you're, as she, and I'm quoting her now, these aren't my words, she said, you're angry, disloyal, MAGA traitor who was caught on t- camera trashing President Trump. When it comes to your party, what do you think is more important? Is it your conservative record 
or your support for Donald Trump? Well, the last part of that is demonstrably false. I wasn't, I've never been caught on camera because I've never done it trashing President Trump. There's a reason why we kicked Marjorie Taylor Greene out of the Freedom Caucus last summer. So she's a disgruntled former member who has an ax to grind. She, she has some kind of deep-seated hatred towards the Freedom Caucus now. She's been exposed as the fraud and the liar that she is. Okay, but Congressman. Uh, she's, upset because, she's upset because Kevin McCarthy was removed as speaker, and she has a personal vendetta against people like me who didn't support Kevin McCarthy for speaker. Uh, in terms of me having a primary challenge, I'm not entitled to the nomination. I had to earn it in 2020. I had to earn it in 2022. I have to earn it in 2024. And I believe the people of the 5th District won't let this seat be bought by Al of the former speaker by the swamp uh, creatures from okay, D.C. Okay, but can and I California. say one thing? Because you're, 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 you don't like, you and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene don't see eye to eye, but, but you are on camera very critical of Donald Trump, and it caused Trump's campaign that, manager that video was, that to video claim that you wouldn't be electable that video, when they were done with you. created by a campaign opponent who sliced it up and edited it to take out the complimentary praise uh, statements that I said about President Trump. It's a highly edited video provided by a campaign operative for my So you didn't say those so things that, are, that you're on camera saying? I mean, you're on camera. If you take sentences and you take part of the sentence out and you get a different uh, 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 conclusion from that sentence, or different inference from that sentence. I, I want everyone who's watching to see what it was that you said, and because it is edited. There, there's moments where it says, Congressman Bob Good says this, feels this. But let me just play a moment of that so everyone video. can it's see what, what's actually on camera. I decided to endorse DeSantis in May because I thought, you know what? I can't sit by and watch and then regret that we nominated Trump. You are on camera saying those things, Congressman. Well, but that's that's part of a larger sentence, a larger conversation that's been edited out. And it takes out the part where I praise President Trump and I tell say that he was the greatest president of my lifetime and that I don't criticize President Trump. I'm just supporting Governor DeSantis. Uh, and and explaining to someone who was asking me, well, you know, why did you make that endorsement decision? And I'm explaining that to them. But I thought in the battleground states that Governor Santos would give us a better chance to win. Obviously, that decision has been made by the voters, uh, uh, Republican voters across the country are overwhelmingly supporting President Trump. And I support President Trump as well. Yeah. Well, you do say on camera that, you know, you don't want to say those things publicly, but you say them privately. It is notable to hear you well, say that, there, though, that well, you thought DeSantis that, would no, be more context effective. Of that, the context of how that was said was I don't criticize President Trump publicly. If somebody asks me privately to, to answer an issue, a question on an issue comparison, I'm going to do that. But the point that I was making is that I'm, I'm for President, excuse me, Governor DeSantis. I was but are you acknowledging that you say things differently publicly than privately? That's what your answer there sounded like, no, Congressman. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, okay. Congressman Bob Good, uh, I really appreciate your time explaining how this went from a, a an endorsement of Governor DeSantis to now your endorsement of Donald Trump. We appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us here on The Source. Thank you. And of course, as we noted, this is now a two-person race and Nikki Haley is making her final pitch against Donald Trump. We have our power players here, their take on what you just heard there, and also whether tomorrow's primary will upend the GOP race or just end it outright. Also tonight, there is a new deal in the works on the table to pause fighting again in Gaza for the release of all the hostages. Will it work? We have the details ahead.
You are looking live at a political tradition that endures through the years. Dixville, Notch, New Hampshire. There are six registered voters there, four Republicans, two who are independents. They are going to be the ones who cast the first ballots in New Hampshire's primary. Since 1960, this tiny community in the northern end of the state has held its election right at midnight, just less than three hours from now. And once everyone has voted in this town, 100% turnout is the norm, obviously, given there's only six people. The polls then close and the results are announced. It's a grand old political tradition. And of course, in these final hours before those votes are cast, what could be the deciding primary for the Republican nomination? We have a new CNN poll that shows, with Ron DeSantis now out of the race, 54% of likely Republican primary voters in New Hampshire want it to be Donald Trump on the ticket. Nikki Haley at 41%. I'm joined tonight by former Obama official and CNN political commentator Van Jones, also former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and host of The Assignment, Audie Cornish. I'm so glad to have you all here. Uh, Alyssa, I just wonder... As we're looking at the grand scheme of what's going to happen tomorrow, what you make of someone like Congressman Bob Good, who is very conservative, is the chair of the House Freedom Caucus, yet he's facing a primary challenge simply because he endorsed Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump initially in this race. Well, listen, they're following the polls. uh, They're following the political headwinds. And it's frankly the opportunistic thing for career politicians to do. At this point, the polls are telling us Donald Trump will very likely be the nominee. However, only 110,000 votes have been cast at this time. And only about 50% of those in Iowa went to Donald Trump. I think that politicians now saying the field should should consolidate, they need to get out and get behind Donald Trump, that's doing a disservice to the voters. Let the New Hampshire voters turn out tomorrow. It's a fiercely independent state. If there is a state where there'd be an upset, it would be there, and then go from there. Van, what do you make of, of the dynamic now? I mean, we have Ron DeSantis, who's out of this race. He has endorsed Donald Trump, but we're told that they've tried to reach out to him, as Christian Holmes said, and we're told that they still haven't spoken. But look at what he, he tweeted tonight. There's this idea, this push by Florida Republicans to pay for Trump's legal bills. And Ron DeSantis quoted it and said, but not the Florida Republican who wields the veto pen. I mean, it's notable. That's his first comment since getting out after endorsing Trump. Well, I mean, I'm sure he feels sad. Uh, because you would think, you know, if you were going to be competitive, you'd follow the rules. You'd go to all 99 counties, which he did. Uh, you would go to all the debates, which he did. You would learn some policy, talk about actual people's problems, with he, which he did, and got smoked, <laughs> just got smoked. And is now, you know, you know begging, you know, hey, like, I've, I'll endorse you. You won't even get a, a phone call back. So this lets you know the kind of heavy-handed, high-handed treatment you can expect from Donald Trump as president. He is humiliating DeSantis. He will humiliate anyone who doesn't kiss the ring, and he'll expect that as president. So all you're seeing is a sneak preview of if you thought Donald Trump was imperious before, wait till you see the new guy. And also what they have learned from the primaries is not that there's a massive never-Trump constituency that was supporting DeSantis and support it. Like, that's not what it was. There were some people giving a look under the hood of some other candidates. But it'll be interesting to see tomorrow night what his threshold is, right? Does it surpass that majority by uh, by a much larger number? And there's no snowstorm to talk about. So if the turnout is low, that's going to be something to pay attention to. If people are kind of fed up with this whole thing, that's going to be something to pay attention to, and there's not going to be an asterisk next to it. So what does that mean for Nikki Haley, uh, Alyssa? Because she has someone who was handling Trump very gingerly at the beginning of this race. In the last 48 hours, I mean, he has come out talking about his mental acuity, talking about his record as president, really going after him. 
But, but is she turning up the heat on him too late? Well, yes. I mean, I love Nikki Haley of a day out from New Hampshire, or even just days before Iowa. I mean, the problem, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and others, if it ends up being Trump as the nominee, which looks very likely, they have themselves to blame. He was indicted on 91 felony charges, and mo in most cases, they more or less defended him. Um, Ron DeSantis, even in the classified documents case, somebody who served in the Navy, basically attributed it to being a witch hunt. I mean, they had the golden ticket to take on the front runner by saying he is unfit for office, here's the reason. Reasons, the courts are going to take care of him, and they chose not to and waited and did this delicate dance. Now, it's not over until it's over, but here's the problem. Nikki Haley has been formidable. She's been better as time has gone on, but the map after, after New Hampshire actually just looks harder for her, whether it's her home state of South Carolina or then you go into these winner-take-all states. How well does she need to do to stay in this race, to justify staying in the race? If she, if she stays within, you know, 10 points, if she's four points back, five points back, I think that will shock people and it would be a good thing for her. But I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, part of the problem is when a DeSantis gets out, 70% of his people go to Trump. So it's not like DeSantis gets out and that helps Nikki Haley. DeSantis gets out, that helps Donald Trump. And so, you know, and I think the other thing is, that you're going to see is a damage to Sununu. Uh, you have a mm -hmm. very popular governor there who I think courageously and with a lot of integrity put his arm around uh, uh, Nikki Haley and said, this is a better uh, Republican for us. And if, he get, if she gets blown out tomorrow, he gets blown out tomorrow. He was asked directly, though, uh, the governor, if he'd still vote for Trump. And I believe he said yes. I was on CNN a few weeks back. Even if he's convicted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't convicted, I think. No, it he was, did later also yeah. tell me even if oh, he's really? convicted. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, something Alyssa said earlier about uh, how it's theirs to lose, how they could have done more. You know, you had Chris Christie kind of shaking his chains, being the ghost of, like, Republican thoughts past and saying, <laughs> I wish I had done this, I wish I had done that trying to open that door to say, let's have a conversation about being critical of this person who is taking on a godlike status in our party. And people didn't take it. And I think that the reluctance to go negative all the way to the end, it is on purpose. They didn't have the courage to do it. And they look at the landscape and they look at the Republican primary base and they see no incentive to. And as someone who's just been watching this for a few years, I'm not sure what it is either. You might be seeing something different, but it's not been clear to me that there is a moderate Republican voter that wants to leave their house and cast votes for any of these people. We will hmm. see tomorrow night. <laughs> we will see tomorrow night and see what that lack of waiting until this comes out, what that means and what it portends for this. Right now, you can see what's happening in New Hampshire. We are seeing all of these candidates get on stage with Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, not really a challenger of his ever, I guess we would say. Audie Cornish, Elizabeth Griffin, Van Jones, thank you all. And to the other primary that is happening in New Hampshire tomorrow, President Biden did not win the state in 2020. Of course, we all remember that. This time, he's not even on the ballot. After pushing House South Carolina at the front of the pack, we'll be joined by the so-called kingmaker in the state, Congressman Jim Clyburn, who helped propel Biden to the nomination in 2020. What can he do to help him now? That's next. Tomorrow's New Hampshire primary will also be, in part, a test for President Biden. That's because Democrats will be voting in the state, too. But there's a catch. Biden won't actually be on the ballot when they go to cast those votes. That's because the state and the National Party are locked in a political civil war of sorts after the Democratic National Committee booted New Hampshire from its traditional first-in-the-nation primary spot in favor of South Carolina. 
But New Hampshire is going ahead with its Democratic primary anyway. It's in the state's constitution that it must be held a week before any other contest. President Biden has opted to keep his name off the ballot there, leading his allies in recent weeks to mount a write-in campaign. The president himself pushed to make South Carolina the first stop on the Democratic nominating calendar. It, of course, is the state that propelled him to the 2020 nomination, due in large part to the endorsement of my next guest, Congressman Jim Clyburn, who joins me now. Congressman, great to have you you here tonight. I wonder, when you're looking at what tomorrow is going to look like for Democrats, do you have any concerns for, for how it could go for the president, whether it could give, you know, these long shot competitors of his any kind of opening? Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, New Hampshire is kind of interesting, especially this year, because as you just mentioned, uh, although uh, President Biden will not be on the ballot, uh, there is a pretty significant write in uh, taking place. And I applaud those Democrats up there who decided to go forward with this write in in order to demonstrate that they are a part of the National Democratic Party uh, and they are adhering uh, to the rules and regulations uh, of our party. And so rather than uh, to continue to lambast the Rules Committee, uh, these people, Anna Custer and others, uh, who I have great respect for, are running this right in. And that's the way to do it. Now, I'll be interested in seeing uh, how uh, well that's done. But as you know, in South Carolina, we had a United States Senator, Strom Thurmond, who won a seat in the Senate by a write-in. And so write-ins are something that I find rather amusing. And I'll be interested in seeing how that comes out. Yeah, and New Hampshire itself has a history of writing campaigns. They haven't always gone well, but we'll see what it looks like. I do want to ask you, because in New Hampshire, there is this robocall that went out to residents there in the state. It, it appears to be this AI voice, this artificial intelligence voice resembling President Biden's, but it is not his. And it's advising people to not go vote tomorrow. Now, I should note, you know, we don't know who's behind this yet, but I wonder when you hear that, how concerned you are about tactics like that being used in the future. And how is an elected official, you feel about that and how, how you should confront it? I'm very concerned about that. And that's part of what I was talking about some time ago uh, when I talked about being very concerned about this election. And I don't know why people dismiss uh, what happened uh, to Hillary Clinton. I don't. Uh, what happened uh, last time uh, with these so-called uh, AI uh, technology, this could be a very disturbing trend. We have got to get a handle on this. We don't have it yet, but we've got to get it before the general election, because I really believe uh, that is something for all of us to be concerned about. This is the way uh, foreign uh, countries seem to be infiltrating our process and uh, making a mockery out of it. So I am very concerned about, uh, about that, uh, yeah. as well as a few. Yeah, it's a real concern for, for politicians in both parties. Uh, Congressman, obviously, as we mentioned, the significant role you played in Biden getting the nomination in and of itself in 2020, your home state is coming up on the calendar. And so I wonder when you look at how his numbers are now, when you dig into the demographics, obviously not just your endorsement, but but the votes of black voters was so critical to Biden doing well. 
in 2020. And I wonder how concerned you are with polls that they show he's underperforming among black voters, sometimes by double digits compared to his 2020 results. Do you think he's doing enough to try to fix that? Well, you know, the president is not responsible for all of that. The president has two hot walls to be concerned about. He has uh, a country uh, that is uh, under threat. Our democracy, whether we want to accept it or not, is under threat. His main competitor right now is making it very clear that he has very low respect, maybe even no respect for our Constitution, no respect uh, for the folkways and mores that make this country what it is. And the president has to be concerned about all of that, trying to undercut funding to Ukraine and Israel, trying to stop now a border uh, resolution that is bipartisan. So that's the president. We, his validator, we have to be out here getting on these college campuses, getting uh, young people to understand that what they see in all of this tweeting and social media is exactly what we're seeing taking place in Hampshire now. It's not the truth. If you really want to vote on what is truthful, what is substantive, then let's take a look at President Biden's record, a record of the, with the so-called rescue plan, the infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act, the PAC Act, Inflation Reduction Act. All of these things make up a legislative uh, legislative successes that's been unrivaled by anything. You have to go all the way back to Lyndon Johnson to find anything close to it. Let's go along debt, for instance. I, I've been amazed at the fact that this president has eliminated $137 billion in student loan debt, and we still hear people saying he didn't keep his promise on student loan debt. My goodness, 3.7 million people have engaged in that. And now we hear uh, from the Department of Education that every two months going forward, for the next four years, 75,000 additional people will be getting uh, this debt elimination. So yeah. we have got to do a better job of penetrating this because the misinformation is great. Yeah, well, we'll see if, if the other young voters, of course, who all wanted student loan forgiven, what that will look like on Election Day. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Congressman Jim Clyburn, as always, thank you for your time and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Up next, we have CNN exclusive reporting on this extraordinary proposal that is being made by Israel to potentially provide top Hamas leaders, senior ones, safe passage out of Gaza. Whether or not Israel will take them, Gaza or Hamas, I should note, will take them up on that. We also have new reporting on the possibility of a new hostage release deal as desperate families are asking the Israeli government to do more. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, a new deal is on the table to pause the war in Gaza and bring the remaining hostages home. We are told Israeli officials have reportedly offered a two-month ceasefire in exchange for the more than 130 hostages who are still being held. Barack Ravid of Axios reporting that this agreement wouldn't end the war outright. And I should note, this comes at a time when the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health says it has killed more than 25,000 people there. But it would be the longest period of a ceasefire that we have seen Israel offer since the war began. Meanwhile, tonight, CNN's exclusive reporting, Alex Marquardt, says that Israel has proposed allowing senior Hamas leaders to leave Gaza as part of a broader ceasefire agreement, a remarkable development in and of itself. Here tonight to talk about the latest, Barack Ravid, also a CNN political and global affairs analyst. Barack, let's let's start with your reporting. Can you just walk us through what Israel is, is offering and, and based on your sense, how likely it is that Hamas would accept the terms? Good evening, Caitlin. Well, uh, this uh, plan uh, was drafted something like 10 days ago in the Israeli war cabinet that basically decided to go almost all out to try and get this deal and give this very forward-leaning proposal to the mediators, to the Qataris, to the Egyptians in order to give it to Hamas. And the Israelis are basically saying, we are ready for a multi-phase process that will take something like two months of a ceasefire, during which uh, Hamas will release all of the hostages in several stages. Israel will release uh, Palestinian prisoners. The IDF will redeploy uh, its forces in uh, Gaza, take some of them out, some of them it will keep in Gaza, but in different places than it is now. And all in all, change how Gaza, uh, how the Gaza war looks today and end the biggest crisis in the war, which is the hostage issue. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen these families. They they stormed into a meeting of Israel's parliament just in recent days. You know, Prime Minister Netanyahu is facing massive protests from them. One of the quotes that they said to them is, to the Knesset, is, you will not sit here while our children die. I mean, these families, understandably, are just at the ends of their ropes. But I wonder what, you, what you've heard in the, in the sense of what the division is in the war cabinet, because we've seen some people uh, like Gotti Eisenkot saying that it's time for uh, a, a deal because this aim of defeating Hamas is unrealistic. But then you see others like Ben Gavir saying he'll quit if Israel ends the war. I mean, what's going on inside the war cabinet right now? Uh, so first, let's say, you know, let's talk about uh, this specific proposal. Um, everyone I spoke to, uh, on the Israeli side, have no doubt that if tomorrow Hamas says, okay, we're ready to more or less this deal, okay, there will be a negotiation of the details, it will pass with flying colors in the Israeli cabinet, okay? Uh, people like Ben Gvir or maybe Smotrich, the Minister of Finance, will vote against, but there's there will be a big majority uh, mm-hmm. in favor, uh, and I'm not sure that uh, Mr. Ben Gvir uh, will give up uh, so quickly on his, uh, you know, title and uh, uh, privileges as minister and go back to the opposition over such a thing. So I think there will be a majority. And what I hear from Israeli officials is that they feel that in the last 10 days or so, uh, every day that passes, they feel that there's more cautious optimism that Hamas will uh, abandon its maximalist position of, you know, ending the war, releasing all prisoners uh, in Israeli prisons, 
uh, giving full immunity to Hamas leaders, uh, and moving more, uh, more and more towards the ability to discuss the parameters Israel's laid out. That's really, really interesting. I mean, obviously, we'll watch closely and keep up with your reporting, Barack Ravid, to see what they ultimately agree to, if anything. Thank you so much, Barack. Thank you, Caitlin. Also tonight, CNN has an exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris talking about abortion, the border crisis, and much more. Sadly, people on the other side of the aisle have been playing politics with this issue. On a day that the Supreme Court actually sided with the Biden administration when it comes to removing razor wire at the southern border with Texas, that crisis still remains a critical issue for the Biden administration. My colleague Lara Coates spoke with Vice President Kamala Harris on the campaign trail today in Wisconsin for an exclusive interview. And here's what Harris had to say about why it has taken so long and the difficulty in finding a solution to the immigration problem. Let's go to the border, because this is something that is in your direct wheelhouse. It has been something that you have been looked to to try to accomplish what has been, frankly, a decades-long endeavor by successive presidential administrations. But there is anger on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, about an unsustainable border, what they're calling a crisis. Why can't this be accomplished during this administration? Well, so there is no question that our immigration system is broken. And so much so that we, as the first bill that we offered after our inauguration was to fix the immigration system, which included what we must do to create a pathway for citizenship Mm -hmm. and to put the resources that are needed into the border. But sadly, people on the other side of the aisle have been playing politics with this issue. The solutions are at hand. And, you know, gone are the days, sadly, where a President Bush or John McCain understood that we should have a bipartisan approach to fixing this problem, which is a longstanding problem. But what are those solutions? The solutions includes putting resources at the border to do what we can to process people effectively and putting in place laws that actually allow for a meaningful, meaningful pathway to citizenship. Laura Coates joins me now. Uh, Laura, one, this was a great interview with Harris Thank that you. covered so many topics. And I know the whole thing is coming up and I can't wait to watch all of it. But but on the immigration issue specifically, I mean, she obviously was tasked with dealing with this in part when the administration first started. You know, they went from in fall of 2022 saying that the border was secure to, to now openly acknowledging that, that it is a problem. It can be a liability. What else did she have to say on this issue? Well, in many ways, one must admit that it's untenable and not sustainable, given all of the conflicts between Democrats and Republicans and the acknowledgement on both sides of the aisle. But she wanted to talk about the notion of the dreamers in particular. Many, many progressives have been very angry that any negotiations do not include that pathway that she spoke about to citizenship or having dreamers essentially become the collateral damage. She spoke a lot about the idea of dreamers in particular. She's very passionate about the issue, even before becoming the vice president of the United States, hoping to form 
that pathway. She didn't want to talk about the ongoing negotiations, but she was hopeful that maybe there would be an opportunity for there either to be that pathway or for dreamers to recognize for their contributions to the community and the environment and, of course, our economy. But I would say overall, she is acknowledging and being quite realistic about the fact that compromises are being made, even those that will not result potentially in a bite at the apple being meaningful this time around. The big question, of course, Caitlin, is for so many people, if not now, when? And for many within even Democratic Party, they're wondering if enough can be done proactively and reactively to address the problems at the border. Yeah, and whether it shows up come November. Laura mm-hmm. Coates, it's a great interview. Thank you for joining us to preview Thanks, it. Thanks, Caitlin. And, of course, you can catch the full interview. You will want to watch all of it with Vice President Harris. That is at 11 o'clock tonight on Laura Coates Live. Also up next here for us, a college student's milestone in the world of pro sports. And guess what? He's from Alabama. Before we go tonight, I have to highlight an unforgettable moment for one amateur golfer who managed to beat the pros. With this winning putt, 20-year-old Nick Dunlap became the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event in 33 years. He is just a sophomore at the University of Alabama. But because of that amateur status, he doesn't get to take home the $1.5 million prize that he should be able to. Instead, that money goes to the runner-up. Of course, the hope here is still that he'll have hopefully as bright of a career a pro career as the last golfer who did exactly this back in 1991. Some guy by the name of Phil Mickelson. He congratulated Nick Dunlap by posting, quote, this is just the beginning. A roll tide for him. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll be back here tomorrow on CNN, 1 p.m. Eastern, and then later on in the evening for our special coverage of the New Hampshire primary. I hope you'll all be watching. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.